So for the since Easter, we've been we've been having this discussion about the evidence that we have for the resurrection and why it matters in the first place. You know, we uh, we dove into a passage that in our what we call scripture um, by a guy named Paul, who was one of the eyewitnesses that we looked at, somebody who actually encountered the risen Jesus and. You know, went from somebody who's persecuting the church and, and killing church people to somebody who all of a sudden is like, I believe this with everything I have. I'm willing to be tortured for it. So this guy, you know, the, the evidence in his life was so strong, the evidence that he believed was so strong that he walked around telling everybody about the resurrection. And he wrote these words to a church in Corinth that we've been looking at. Uh, for the past several weeks, in chapter 15, if you want to write this down, you all have a piece of paper now. So you have a, something you can write it down on if you want to. You obviously don't have to. But he says this in, uh, in chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. He says, For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless. So this thing that I do every, almost every week, it's all completely useless and I'm wasting my time. You're wasting your time listening to this. If he didn't rise from the dead, it's all useless. And then he says, and your faith is useless. That's how big of a deal Easter was. That it, without it, it's all pointless and we're all wasting our time. It's fun being together. It's fun hearing you sing. It's fun trying to listen closely to that person next to you who's barely singing and seeing if you can catch a little bit of what they're saying over there. That's all great and that's all good and it's nice to see each other, but really it's all pointless other than the time together. But in verse 15, he continues on, it says, And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. So you see the the cycle here that he's talking about in verse 17 and if Christ has not been raised he says it again your faith is useless and you are still guilty of all of your sins that's how big of a deal Easter was that's how big of a deal it is as to whether or not there was a dead man who was all of a sudden walking again. You remember maybe on Easter morning when I came out here and I asked you, what would it take for you to believe that pigs could fly? Well, we just asked you a little bit ago, what would it take for you to believe that a dead man rose again? And that's why you have hope, that a dead man was walking around. Now, for those of us who do already believe this, there's another directive that has been given to us that we find in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you want to turn to it, if you want to write it down later, whatever you need to do. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, says, actually I'm going to go back just a little bit in verse 14. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life and... If someone asks about your hope as a believer, that question that I asked you to write down on that piece of paper, if somebody asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do it in a gentle and respectful way. A couple of weeks ago, I came up here and we talked about how it's important to know these things. It's important to know this evidence, but not so that we can just go out and we can have arguments with people and we can win arguments. I mean, we, 
you get on social media, you get on the news, you get on talk radio, whatever it is, people love to just go out and make sure that they win the argument and they don't give a rip about how the other person feels when it's all said and done. But we're told that as we go out and we give this reason for the hope that we have, to do it in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. There are about 10 messages that I could give you just out of that passage. We could be here until tomorrow morning if, uh, if we really wanted to dig into everything that this passage has to offer for us. I'm not going to do that to you this morning, I promise. But I would ask you again, what would you say if somebody walked up to you and said, why do you have a hope in this resurrected Savior? Why do you have a hope in this man named Jesus? Why do you believe any of this stuff? Our stories are incredibly important, and we've been talking about your story is incredibly important. Your personal road to what we call salvation, that moment of, of realizing that Jesus is who he said he is, he did rise from the dead, and he is the reason that we can have hope in this life. Your story as to how you came to that understanding matters. But we have to remember that everybody has a story for why they believe what they believe. So what else is there to back up your story as opposed to their story. Everybody has a reason. Whether they don't believe in God at all, whether they believe in, in Buddha, whether they believe in, in Hinduism, whether they believe in whatever it is, they all have a story for why that belief came to be in their life. And for you just to sit there and look at them and be like, yeah, but yours is wrong as mine is right, now listen to mine, isn't going to get you very far in the conversation. Because they're going to look at you and be like, no, yours is wrong as mine is right, now listen to mine. And you're just going to go back and forth like we see Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith do all the time on ESPN. And you're sitting there, and if you actually watch it, you're like, neither one of these guys are making any sense in the first place. We don't want that kind of a conversation. We want to be able to give the reason with something to back it up in a gentle way. And that's what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. But the question often becomes when we, when we start to dig into this kind of stuff, like what does it mean for me to be able to go around and give this evidence? Do I have to be able to quote all of these different things that there are to talk about? Do I have to be like professor-level apologist in order to be able to do any good when it comes to explaining the reason for the hope that I have? And when I say apologist, I know that sometimes we hear that and we're like, why are we apologizing for being a Christian? Why are we apologizing for believing that stuff? Please understand, if, if you don't, um, that apologist in this world is not apologizing, but apologist is being able to defend your faith. Apologist is being able to give the answers for why you believe this stuff. Totally different kind of uh, apologist out there. But do I have to be like, do I have to be to that point where I can go out and I can speak to the masses or, or if somebody asks me, hey, um, tell me all about the eyewitness accounts and everything that they believed and everything they experienced and I have to be able to answer every single one of those questions. Otherwise, I better just keep my mouth quiet. I want you to consider 
three different people, or actually it's three different groups of people this morning. The first one we encounter in John chapter 4, when Jesus goes and he sits by a well. His disciples all go into town to find food, and Jesus plants himself by this well until the woman comes out to it. And he asks this woman for a drink of water. And they have this conversation, they go through uh, what it means to, to be thirsty for water, and he says, I have something that you'll never be thirsty again. And they have this awesome conversation, and at the end of their conversation, what we see is this woman who didn't understand any of this before goes sprinting into town. I mean, I know sometimes we read it and we kind of walk away like she just kind of jogged into town. No, I... I envision like she runs into town because she is so excited and she starts to tell everybody about this man that she encountered out at the well. And I, you know, I read this and I'm just, I'm picturing her like, you've got to come meet this guy that I just met out there. He told me everything that I've ever done wrong in my life. And, you know, if you're receiving, I was like, why do I want to meet somebody who's going to tell me everything that I've ever done wrong in my life? But apparently she is expressing this in such a convincing way that it actually gets through to townspeople. That this woman who they, they shouldn't even by their culture be listening to in the first place comes in and people are, are engaged with what it is that she has to say. This woman who had no knowledge about Jesus, no knowledge about who the Messiah actually was until this moment, runs into town and begins telling everybody about who she just encountered. Or we have these disciples, these people who walked with Jesus, and as you look at their history, as you look at who they would have been, they were tax collectors, they were fishermen, they were uneducated, they were, they were these guys who flunked out of church school, and Jesus comes up to them and he says, hey, I want you to follow me, and so they do. And we come to this point in Acts chapter 4 in verse 13 when Jesus has ascended into heaven, he's no longer walking on the earth, and some of these disciples, these uneducated men, are standing before the, the Sanhedrin, like the super intelligent God people. The ones who know all the rules and who have spent all of their life memorizing all of this stuff. The ones who have controlled the religious world for centuries. And these men stand before them and they present their case. They present their reason for the hope that they have. And in Acts chapter 4, in verse 13, we read this about these men. These other guys look at them and they say, sorry, they realize through the boldness of Peter and John that they were, though they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures, they recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. They were amazed when they heard Peter and John speak. These men who had all of the education in the world were amazed at what these uneducated, simple men had to say. These guys didn't go to, you know, four years of Bible college and then three years of seminary and, and then a couple courses in apologetics and then go out and start sharing the reason for the hope that they had. And what they did is they they shared their experience, and then they shared the evidence behind that experience, and people were amazed by what they walked away with. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have this guy named Saul, 
who eventually, because of an encounter that he has with Jesus, is renamed Paul, and he starts planting these churches all over the place. Saul was the uber-educated person who knew all the history. He knew the history of the faith. He could give you all the answers. He could have all the arguments. He could sit there, and he could hear you talk about the God that you believed in, and he could engage with you on a, a level that, that most of us, I mean, we're sitting there like, I, I couldn't even understand half the words he's saying if we're talking to him. But, but he, could, he could go to whatever level he needed to go to for whoever it was that he was talking to. And he walked around sharing the reason for the hope that he had. So we have the woman who just met Jesus. We have the disciples who walked with him for three years. We have Paul who met him and had all of the history in the background all memorized. And all three of them are able to go and give the reason for the hope that they have. There is not a prerequisite for this is what you need to know before you are able to go out and have a conversation. Before you are able to go out and by your actions show the reason for your hope. A couple of weeks ago, we put a bunch of books out here. And I encouraged you, hey, these are, these are some books that I would recommend that you read so that you can understand some of these things and so that you can learn about some of these things. I think it's important for us to spend the time discovering these truths. And I think that it is important, it is vital for us to dig into this evidence and to understand the evidence that we have so that we can have more than when somebody comes back and you share your story with them and they go, yeah, but why did you come to that? Like, what else? And you don't just sit there and go, I don't know, you just got to believe it. Like, I don't know. But so that we can have more than just, you just got to have faith, but so that we can believe in the faith is the evidence of things unseen part of it. I think it's important for us to be able to do that and to spend time in that. To not be lazy and just say it's, it's too difficult. I have too many other things on my plate. I can't take the time to discover whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. I'm just going to walk around and say I believe it and just you know, go with that. I think it's important for us to go deeper than that. But I don't want you to hear me saying or really to hear anybody else saying that if you don't have all of that knowledge shoved in your head, then you're off the hook and you don't need to bother with any of this stuff. Because we have a responsibility to share with the world around us why there's any hope in the first place. And I think we have a responsibility to be prepared when we walk into those conversations. Now, I kind of felt like I had a little bit of a throwback to, to youth ministry days when I had you guys write on those pieces of paper during the song because we would do that kind of stuff. Only in youth ministry, I would go to the next step and we would either go to community groups after this and they would have to actually talk to each other about the answers that they wrote down or I would have them look at one another and share those answers. But one thing I've learned uh, in the times that I've gotten to speak with um, those who are not as young of youth anymore, the, uh, the just older youth that I work with now more often, is that so often if you ask adults to do those things, they look at you and they look at the person next to them and they look back at you and go, no. And nobody does anything. Like, no, I, I can't do that. I wanted to, but I decided it would really end up, for most of us, just being three to five minutes of 
quiet time. And so we're going to keep on rolling. But I would encourage you that when we're done here this morning, man, find somebody in this room and just walk through it with them. As part of your preparation process, walk through it with them. You know, if you're a sports fan, I think you've probably seen that team at some point or another that you're cheering for, or that your team's going against, or, or maybe it was your kid's team, but they go out there and you see them play and you're just sitting there going, like, did they practice at all before this game started? Or did they just throw, my, my girls were just in an indoor soccer league where they literally had no practices. You showed up on Saturday morning and you played. The coach was actually usually five minutes later than the players to the game. And like, I'm sitting there and I'm going, there is no preparation for this. And I can tell by the product that's on the field. As opposed to the soccer league that they're in now, where they, Keeley has two practices a week, Tegan has one practice a week, they're learning plays, they're learning positions, all of these things, and I sit out there and I watch the game, and sometimes they still lose. But I sit out there and I watch, and I see the vast difference between this team that had no preparation, same level of skill, and natural skill, in the players, but no preparation, as opposed to the team, again, same level of natural skill, but they've been out there preparing for what they're walking out to do. Even as you prepare, you're going to get yourself into situations where you're like, I, <laughs> I don't know what to do. You know, we, we've seen the team. I'm a, I'm a Chiefs fan. Yes, I'm going to talk about sports one more time. I'm a Chiefs fan, and I watched the same Super Bowl that many of you watched. And I have no doubts that they went out prepared, and they got destroyed in that game. Those who watched it with me, they, they saw the, the disappointment just slowly settle in because my team was prepared. My team. The team was prepared. But they got beat anyway. And there are going to be those times, and this is what so often scares us away from doing any of this. That there's going to be those conversations where you walk into them and you've been preparing. You've been giving it your all. And you're not going to know what to do. You're going to go into conversations where you walk into it and you're like, man, I really want to share with this person what this is all about. And you walk away from it and you feel like the person, they think you're a bigger idiot when you left than you did when you walked in. You had the answers, but they didn't buy any of them. They didn't believe it. And that's just part of it. I mean, if we look at Jesus... We look at the one that we're following, the one that we're talking about here. He fed 5,000 plus people a meal, and all of a sudden they all believed in him. And the next day he decided to teach them something different. And you know what they all did? See ya. No thanks. Not interested. And they turned around and they walked away from Jesus. Paul, the disciples, most of them killed for their faith. Not because people were like, I believe you, now I'm going to kill you. But because people didn't believe what they, were, what they were given. You're going to walk into those situations. And it terrifies us. 
it makes many of us freeze up or it makes many of us get to that point of like, I'm not even going to try. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna find my little corner of my cubicle and I'm not even gonna bother talking to anybody else. I don't want them to see me so that they don't see my example. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hide so that I don't run into that situation where I find out that I didn't really know what to do. But we're told to be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have. When people are searching all around us, we can't just sit there and be like, mm, no, not gonna, I'm not gonna. We're told that this is our job, to take around this ministry of reconciliation and, and show people what this is all about. This is our responsibility. And that doesn't mean that we go up to somebody and we say, hey, you should come to my church so that somebody else can tell you about the reason for the hope that I have. We've been asking for the past week and a half or so, uh, we put something out on Facebook and I, I mentioned something last week. Hey, where do you work? Or where do you volunteer? Where do you serve? And, and we've got some other things that we're gonna do with that, hopefully, if we can... Sometimes I ask the question with this great idea in mind, and then I realize that I don't know how to make the great idea happen. Um, but I ask the question anyway. And so as we've had these answers come in, the reality of this has become more and more clear to me that this sanctuary, just to give you an idea, theoretically seats 650 people. I think if we tried to seat 650 people in here, uh, 300 people would leave. But because we, we had quite a few on Easter, and it was tight. I think when they say 650, they're talking about like little children with really skinny bottoms. But anyway, we'll say 450 that we could fit in here. So maybe I could share this with 450 people for 25 to 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. But think about how many people each of you come into contact with each and every week. Think about where you work and how many people you come into contact with. If you're a teacher or, or you work in the school system, think about all those students and all those other teachers that you're surrounded by every single week. If you go and you volunteer places, think about all of those people that you are coming into contact with every single week. And if we begin to add that up for how many Brian comes into contact with and how many Nick comes into contact with and how many David comes into contact with and, and you know, we just go through how many do you come into contact with, it's going to be a whole lot more than 450 people that you have the opportunity to share about the hope that you have. Why is it important for us to understand why we have this hope? Part of the reason is because there will come a day, if it hasn't already for you, I would almost guarantee there will come a day when you doubt it. When you look back and you're like, man, that felt so real when that first happens. When I first came to believe this, I was so incredibly convinced but now I'm not so sure. Now I've had life thrown my way. Now I have my doubts. 
And Paul spoke to that in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. He says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. And here's a line that I want you to, to take, I want you to take all of this away from it. I don't ever want you to be like, hey, discard that scripture, now let's listen to this one. Listen to all that as it builds upon this. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. There's always been new teachings out there. They are surrounding us right now. And we can easily be pulled here and then pulled here and then pulled here. We see it all the time and we feel it. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Why is it important for you to discover the evidence behind your story so that you yourself aren't just whipped all over the place as to what you believe. So that when the doubts creep in, so that when that other convincing story comes along, you remember why you believed this in the first place. It's important for us to understand this because we all have somebody younger in our lives. Whether it be a child, a grandchild, just a, a person who's younger in the faith in our lives. In Proverbs 22, we read the words that we are to train up a child in the way they should go so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. We so often begin to lament about what the schools are teaching our kids or, or what the media is teaching our kids or, or what, you know, fill in the blank, what this person is teaching our kids. Parents, grandparents, anybody who has influence over younger people. We need to understand this so that we will stop giving our responsibility away to everybody else. Because it is not the school's responsibility to teach our kid good morals and to teach our kid good beliefs. It is not the media's responsibility to teach our kid good morals or to teach our kid good beliefs or to teach our kid about Jesus. It is our responsibility to have that conversation. And for so long, we have lived in a Christian society, a, a, a nation that has founded its faith upon Jesus. And now that that's not the case anymore, that we are becoming a post-Christian society, a post-Christian nation, we're all sitting there going, we're, we're up in arms. Like, how can they do this? How are we going to teach our kids? What's, who's going to teach our kids? And the answer is, you are. We are going to teach our kids because we should have been doing it the entire time. And if I'm being honest, I think that parents, this is from years in youth ministry, this is from before that, I think that we as parents, and I'm throwing myself into this, we have gotten lazy when it comes to sharing the reason for the hope that we have with our kids because it's easier to talk to our kids about the sport that they're in or the, the, uh, the, the grade that they got on a test than it is to talk to them about Jesus. I don't know why we find it easier, but we seem to find it easier to have those conversations than to have the most important conversation that we can have. We get up in arms when the school starts talking to our kids about safe sex. We're like, no, they should be teaching them about not having sex, and we're all upset at the school. Have you had the conversation with your child about not having sex? 
or are you just counting on the school to take care of that? And yes, I bring that example up because that's an example that goes back to my days in youth ministry. Or we send our kid off to MC Kids or to youth, and we say, you teach them about this. We only have your children here in this building for maybe two hours a week. You have them a lot longer than that. We need to understand the evidence so that we can be teaching the next generation about it and not just counting on somebody else to teach the next generation about all of this. And I'm putting myself right in that same boat. I've encouraged you to buy a book back there called Cold Kish. Cold Case Christianity for Kids, and I told you that, man, it, it walks you through all this stuff, and, and you can print off these certificates for your kids, and I'm gonna be honest with you, we got through lesson number two, and then it became too inconvenient to make sure that we were doing it every week because we were running to this and running to this and doing this and doing that. So this is a gut check for me. I can't just rely on that book to do all the teaching either. We need to, we need to understand the evidence because the world around us needs somebody who's willing to share the evidence in a world that is not friendly to it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to a young man that he has been investing in, that he has been teaching about the evidence. He writes to him, preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. I'm gonna read through that one one more time. And I want you to read that not as in the Paul writing this to a man named Timothy about 2,000 years ago, but as if he's writing it to you in the United States of America in 2021. Preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently, and I, I hesitate on that word every time because I want to make sure you hear it. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth 
and chase after myths. But you, me, should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news. Notice it doesn't say just tell them the good news when it's easy. Work at telling them the good news and fully carry out the ministry. The ministry in the schools, the ministry in the hospitals, the ministry in the retirement facilities, the, mini the ministry in the, in the rehab facility, the ministry at the elevator, the ministry wherever it is that you serve or you work, the ministry that God has for you. Be prepared in and out of season to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's our call. I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to be someone who does this. But it can be so easy because of this for me to be like, you know, when, when I'm not on the clock, when I'm sitting on an airplane, when I'm, when I'm going to graze on Wednesday mornings, to be like, I'm, don't approach me. I'm not a pastor right now. I don't wanna have to talk about all that. Right now, I just wanna talk about sports. Right now, I'd rather talk to you about my favorite latte. Those conversations are obviously going to happen. But I don't get to shut off the call to ministry that God has put on my life. Just because your name doesn't have pastor in front of it doesn't mean that your call to ministry isn't every bit as vital to the world that we live in. No matter where it is, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have.